0: Hey, readers, it's Anne, and I want to give you a quick heads up on today's episode. This live episode is spicier than our usual fare, including a couple of stories that might be described as adult and may not be appropriate for younger listeners. I hope you love it. And also, you may not want to listen to this one with little ears around. Hey, readers, I'm Anne Vogel. And this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 351. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? Before we jump in, this Thursday is What Should I Read Next Trivia. Our Patreon community is gathering for a delightfully nerdy night of answering questions about books, authors, our team, and some of our funniest and most memorable moments across 350 episodes and more. If you're already a patron, thank you. I can't wait to see you there. If you're not yet a patron, I welcome you to join us. It's going to be so much fun. Trivia Night is Thursday, October 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Learn more and sign up at patreon.com slash what should I read next readers. Last month, I traveled to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for the Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors. And today, we're bringing the festival to you. I'm thrilled to invite you to come on into the room and grab a seat for an incredible conversation. While you can't actually be in the beautiful church that serves as Bookmarks' largest on-site venue live with us, I hope this episode gives you a taste of what happens when authors come together to talk about their books and tell stories from their writing lives like they do at literary festivals like these. This was my third time at Bookmarks and this year was a little different for me. I was there for my new kids reading journal, My Reading Adventures, I'd never had a kids book before. So in addition to all the on-site fun, I got to go out into the community to visit elementary schools and talk to young readers. You'll hear in our wrap-up today where you can go to see all these sneak peeks into what happened at bookmarks while I was there. But today, my favorite part of the festival was the panel that you're about to hear. The theme is book club favorites. And when festival chair Beth Buss, who's also a What Should I Read Next alum, is she joined me to recommend books for your wish lists in episode 257, find it, it's called Let's Build Your Holiday Book List. Anyway. Beth asked me to moderate, and I could not say yes fast enough because listen to this lineup TJ Clune, Andrew Sean Greer, Brendan Slocum, and T.O. Williams. My goal as moderator was to give everyone room to share a taste of what their books are like, to tell stories they perhaps hadn't told before, and to share recommendations for excellent book club reads. Let me tell you, these four delivered all that and more. Readers laughed, readers cried, readers laughed so hard they cried. This panel was the talk of the festival, and even immediately after we wrapped it, I heard people in the room tell me that they couldn't wait to listen again. I'm so happy you can listen now. Thanks so much to the Bookmarks NC Festival of Books and Authors and everyone who made this possible. The authors and publishers who supported us sharing this live replay, the festival staff and devoted volunteers. Seriously, their volunteers are amazing. All of them who made the book magic happen. We are so grateful for everyone whose time, energy, and devotion enrich our literary landscape and all of our lives by bringing us these incredible literary events. One quick note for the audio. This is a five-person panel. The first voice you'll hear is the volunteer who opens the session, and he points out, like with his finger, who is who as he introduces everyone. Even though you can't see that while you're listening, I want to assure you that every author mentions their own book pretty quickly, so you will know who is who. TJ is here for Under the Whispering Door, Andy's book is Less is Lost, Brendan authored The Violin Conspiracy, and Tia's is Seven Days in June. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to the 17th Annual
1: Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors. My name is Steve McCullough, and I am a bookmarks volunteer. Thank you for attending the Book Club Favorites panel. On behalf of bookmarks, I'd like to thank this year's festival presenting sponsors, the North Carolina Arts Council and the NC Arts Council Spark the Arts Grant, the Arts Council of Winston-Salem and Forsyth County, the Mebin Foundation, and Salem Town Retirement Community. Our authors today are Andrew Sean Greer, TJ Clune, Brendan Slocum, and Tia Williams. Our moderator is the modern Mrs. Darcy, Anne Bogle. All five of our panelists will be signing books immediately following the session at the book signing tent. Books are available for purchase at the bookstore tent and inside Bookmarks Bookstore. At the end of the session, there will be time for Q&A. Thank you, and please join me in welcoming Anne, Andrew, TJ, Brendan, and Tia.
0: A packed house. I love it. Welcome readers. This is the Book Club Favorites panel. So excited to be here and to be doing this with you four. We are leaning in today to the idea of book club favorites. So I'd love you to think in your minds, what is the kind of novel that I can't wait to talk to my friends about? That I really want to stay too late and have another glass of wine or whatever you drink at book club and talk a little more about the book. What makes you think like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to a reader about this book. Those are the things we're going to talk about today. I don't want to jinx anything but we are recording this panel and it will air as an episode of What Should I Read Next. Say a little prayer, send your good vibes into the universe. (laughs) You can hear this again. And when you talk to readers in the signing line later, because everybody's signing, who say, oh, I'm devastated, I missed that because my flight from Tampa was late. That's a story I've heard a half dozen times today. You can tell them, don't worry, you can hear Tia and TJ and Brendan and Andy on What Should I Read Next, but again, Finished audio isn't done until it's done. Fingers crossed. Also, Modern Mrs. Darcy's a brand name. I would never pretend to be Lizzie Bennett Incarnate. That's just snotty. But like we can love her, and I think that'd be fun to talk about in book club. Okay, let's do this. So we're gonna jump in real quick. Sixty seconds each. Just tell me about a memorable book club experience. Whether it's something that you experienced as a peer or something that you participated in as an author or heard a story about later. Could you hear good stories when you write books that people talk about in book club?
2: I got this one. I'll I'll start it off. This wasn't about a book club experience, but what happened after the book club that I attended virtually. So some of you might know, I wrote a book called The House in the Cerulean Sea. Thank you. And um, this book came out in March of 2020. Remember remember this innocent time that we used to live in, where I was with my big, shiny new publisher, and I was saying, Guess what, everybody? I have a book coming out about kindness and the Antichrist. <laughs> y'all are going to read it. Y'all are going to love it so much. And then in the background, I hear, Hey, has anybody ever heard of COVID-19? What is this thing? Everybody's getting sick? And then... House in the Cerulean Sea came out. The week the pandemic exploded in the United States, and I was trying to get everybody to buy this book, but everybody's freaking out about toilet paper. <laughs> now, for reasons I still don't understand. So here's, here's, what, here's what, what happened next. I got invited to a book club and it was wonderful it was it was a group of older women and i say that with love and respect they were they were in their 70s and their 80s after the book club it was fine it was like a 20 minute conversation after the book club i get an email from an 87 year old woman she wanted to let me know that she didn't want to say this during the book club cuz she didn't want to offend me but that my inclusion of the antichrist child in this book was an affront to her religion and that she did not um, appreciate me putting that in the book and that she's worried about, because as a religious woman, she's worried about what would happen with younger readers would would do that. And then she signed off the email by saying, but I did not mind the homosexuals. (laughs) So when we think about this, for all I know, for all I know, This woman had no idea there were homosexuals in this book. And she picked it up, and she might have been the most homophobic person in the world, but she was so mad about the Antichrist that she gave the gays a pass, and I count that as a win.
3: I can't top that. I'm sorry. I didn't put Antichrist. Mine is just, it was just like an even more simpler time. 2003, I had my third book come out, and I was the kind of author who would do anything mm-hmm. to visit a book club. Like, there wasn't even Facebook. There was somehow they found... I, MySpace, yeah. MySpace. Yeah. They were on, <laughs> wrote me on MySpace, and were like, we have a little book club, and we'd love you to come visit, and uh, somewhere I live in San Francisco, so it was someplace an hour drive, and I was like, absolutely, I'll be there. And I show up, and of course, they were a wonderful book club in that they were very honest, and they were like, you know, none of us really like the book very much. <laughs> Just had to sort of handle that for an hour, and then drive home, and I carry it with me still. <laughs> I wish I put the Antichrist in.
2: <sighs> I I don't know if I would have been able to sit there the whole time for the hour after if that was like one of the you get there and these group of people say yeah we didn't it like you very like, much well I was saying well screw you guys I also have to keep reminding myself that we're in a church so <laughs> 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 like if there's Adult language. My bad. Sorry, Jesus.
4: All right. So TJ and Andy, thank you guys for letting us appear with you all today. We really appreciate that. Um, my, one of my most memorable experiences with the book club for The Violent Conspiracy is a nice group of older ladies. They're very nice. You know how you have the Zoom chat. They're going through the book. We're going through the characters. How did you do this? How did you do this? I'm talking and smiling. I get a message you're really cute. Are you single? <laughs> oh, someone got Zoom thirsty. <laughs> and I'm like, is that for me? And uh, so I kind of ignore it. And then I, I, I look at the name and I'm scrolling through the boxes to see which one this is. I'm like, okay, yeah, all right. She could get it. That's my mom's. Okay, okay, <laughs> all right, all right. Okay. And then I get another one. Oh my gosh. Your smile. Oh, I can't even say it. It's I can't. <laughs> I just want to tell you that your smile, blah, 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 you can fill in the blank, and that's what
3: it was, and book club, yeah, good stuff. I can't wait for audience questions after this.
0: I just got to say, when I asked this question, that was not what I was expecting. (laughs) God,
5: honestly, like, how do I top these three? So my books are a little steamy. So I wrote a book called Seven Days in June. Before that, I wrote a book called The Perfect Fine. Thank you. And there's always a couple of spicy scenes in there. And so I was in a book club um, when The Perfect Fine came out in 2016 at a simpler time, right? they had asked me to read a piece. And I had prepared the piece that I was going to read. And the woman um, moderating the book club was like, no, 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 we don't want to hear that one. <laughs> we don't want to hear that scene. And then she was like, she goes into this long thing about how she was reading about this, you know, this love story between Jenna and Eric. And she's like, I love my husband, but not like that. <laughs> and so I, t- I brought it in bed with us. And I read him this specific scene, and we had sex like you would not believe. Oh my God. And I was like, cute, like that's great. Then another woman in the club at the table was like, I think my husband needs to hear you read that. (laughs) Because I love my husband too, but it doesn't pop off like it does in your book. So she called her husband, and I read Uh, this scene, and I was like, we should be, we should get paid for this, like, how do I monetize the the, the reading of sex scenes to husbands that don't know how to put it down? (laughs) That's all I got.
0: (laughs) Okay, two things. I'm not sure I can go on. (laughs) You read it I did Well
5: because also you know how shameless authors are Like we're trying to promote our stuff this is what you want to hear, I'm going to give it to you
2: Okay, but I gotta ask, (laughs) did you read it like monotone Or did you just give it your all Oh, I
5: gave
4: it my all (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry
0: (laughs) We will not have a show of hands For how many of the audience members wish This could change direction right now (laughs) But, but Okay, so TJ, you already broached the COVID-19 dam. Something that all your books have in common is that you are writing about incredibly difficult subjects relevant to every reader. Like the hardest things in life is what you're writing about. And they're wrapped in these juicy, unputdownable packages. I'd love to hear you talk about how you approach writing difficult things while remaining true to yourself and telling the story you want to tell.
2: So in addition to The House in the Cerulean Sea, last year I released a book called Under the Whispering Door. Thank you. Very nice. Um, Under the Whispering Door, as those who've read it, is a book about grief and what it does to people and, and how it can change us as I I talked about in the panel previous to this one, I lost my partner unexpectedly in, in 2013. Um, it was a, a strange and scary and horrifying time that just let me, it just made me collapse into this pit of toxicity that I did not know how to get out of. And it started me thinking about how grief works because Grief is something universal. If you live long enough to know what love is, you'll know loss at some point in your life. But at the same time, no two people grieve the same way. It's unique to every individual. We never grieve as the same as the person that's next to us. And so I wanted to to explore that dichotomy and, and what that would look like. So with Under the Whispering Door, I set out to write a story trying to figure out my own grief and what that could mean for me, and what grief can do to people. And what I learned in this book, this book about a a terrible person, a man named Wallace who dies, and then he, instead of being taken to the afterlife or whatever, he's taken to a way station, which is in the form of a tea shop, where he's given a choice that he can try to become a better person, and make the most of what the life he has now. This book did not heal me. It did not fix me. It did not make me better. But what I learned from it is that grief doesn't go away. There's no such thing really as closure. Instead of our grief shrinking, we grow around it. We become bigger than our grief. And the thing that happens from that point on though, as a reminder, is even when that grief calcifies and solidifies and hardens, it can still crack every now and then. Maybe a month down the road, 10 years down the road, and you still feel it as sharply as you did that first time. So with this book, with this idea of grief and love and loss, I wanted to get those answers. I didn't, but I felt at peace for the first time in a very long time. And that is what I think is so wonderful about words, is that words have power to change lives. They can lift people up. They can bring people low. They can start wars, religions, and cults. And every now and then a person like me can write a little book in the depths of his grief and find his way out on the other side and have hope again. And that's the one thing that I think that we all need to remember is that we have to have hope, especially in the times that we live in now.
3: There's some people crying in the the front row, too. Sorry, Jesus. (laughs) Let's see. I I wrote a book uh, years ago that was called uh, Less. That was... That was a, a, a comedy making fun of me, basically. Um, and then for, for my next book, I was going to write something totally different, but then I decided I was going to write a follow-up to that book because I had such a good time. And so I had to do what I did, unless I had to sit down and think, what is the most humiliating thing that has ever happened to me? And how can I make it funny? And I was like, well, I thought I put them all in the last book. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, no, I, there's one I didn't put in. I didn't put in my first kiss maybe I'll just tell it, to you. it's a little unseemly, but I'll make it, it, it gracious, which was I was in college, I was 18 years old, and I'd come out as gay, um, but I, had, I was ostensibly gay. I was not practicing. Um, <laughs> and there was, a, there was like a big gay dance going on at, at the college, and I'd made some like gay friends at the men's group, super secretive in those days. And so we were like, why don't we have a couple drinks? Uh, beforehand, so we met at my singing group's room on campus, and we had like Kahlua and orange juice, you know, something like that kind of thing and like, one guy showed up and the other guy didn't show up, and we're like, all right, let's drink what we got, and then we put on George Michael, and it was 1988, and had Kahlua and orange juice, it can't be true might have been Drambuie, yeah yeah, that was homophobic of us, yeah. yeah.
1: Yes,
3: yeah. And, uh, you know, we'd started dancing and then, like, then we kissed, which was very exciting. And then one thing led to another. I ended up kneeling on the ground before him, let's say. And then he vomited all over me. <laughs> oh God. See, it is funny, right?
0: <laughs> so I put it in the book. Alternate title this afternoon is You Laugh or You Cry.
4: How did that not make it into the first book? I I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It I actually forgot what the question was. What are we
0: talking about? The question was top that. (laughs) Tell, Tell us about turning writing excruciating things into a story that you can't stop. I wanted to say listening to, can you tell I listened to the violin conspiracy as I'm talking to Brendan, like the hardest things into a story that you can't stop reading.
4: So many different things going on in the violin conspiracy. And a lot of them came from, I'm just curious how many of you've read it? Not enough hands.
2: <laughs>
4: nope. I was not going to give any spoilers, but you know what? You hadn't read it. So boom, here it comes. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I won't do that because there's time to pick up the book just, it it encompasses a whole lot of things. There's an emotional aspect to it. You know, there's, the hardest chapter for me to write was um, the letter in chapter 33 where young Grandma Nora is, uh, she's being dictated. There's a story that uh, her grandpa, Pop Pop, is telling her about respect and how it was when he was growing up. And, you know, it had to do with slavery and the brutality and, you know, this is what happened. And it was really, really, really tough. And I had a bunch of fights with my editors because they thought it was too much. They thought it was too graphic and too brutal. And I toned it down a little bit, but just writing that it was, I, I really wanted to make sure that it was as accurate as possible. When I was in school in junior high, Barica had slaves, black people picked cotton, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. That was it. And, you know, I did a lot of research. I'm like, whoa, there's a lot that went on. And it was really uncomfortable for people to read. And they have actually told me I had to stop reading it because it was so tough, but I powered through it. And I'm glad that I did. And I'm glad that you put that in because now I have a different perspective. I had no idea that this is what life was like. I had no idea that this is what people who look like you had to endure, you know, for hundreds of years. And just writing those types of things, just making the determination, I'm going to put this in and I'm going to fight to keep this in because I think it's an important aspect of our history that
5: sometimes, to lose how many people have read seven days in june
0: let okay. me say we're going to roll back and the next question is going to be give us the elevator pitch for your story oh that's good yeah. okay um
5: so seven days in june is about a black author single mother of a 12 year old who writes erotica who has a creole mother and a migraine, intense migraines that she's had since she was nine years old. I have all of those things <laughs> as well. So I have this chronic, invisible disability. It can really suck. And some years are better than others. Some years are emergency rooms and IVs and all kinds of nonsense going on disability. So the year that I started writing Seven Days in June, I was in that hole. Um, like a, a really bad sort of migraine spell. I hadn't been on a date in five years, I hadn't had any sort of, as my grandmother would say, horizontal refreshments. LAUGHTER In quite some time. So what I kind of set out to do when I wrote Seven Days in June is is invent this, like, fictional doppelganger who, like, gets some and, like, has a happy ending, gets up off the couch, because I felt like I was living my life on the couch. Like, I would order food for me and my daughter from the couch. I would help her with her homework on the couch. I would detangle her hair on the couch, like, everything on the couch. Also on the couch, I would sometimes attempt to give myself my own horizontal refreshments, which is difficult when you're in pain and also difficult when you're not feeling it and trying to force yourself to feel, this is mortifying. Um, (laughs) And there was one time where I felt like this, okay, oh, so this is rock bottom. You thought you were rock bottom before. This moment is it. I had a special toy. I was chewing gum. I turned the toy on. It vibrated intensely and I choked on my gum and I almost died. (laughs) And I was like, this is dark. (laughs) Like what? What would the, you know, what's the epitaph? Like, what are they, you know? So I was like, like, you, let's make this funny somehow. And so on the very first page of Seven Days in June, it opens with, on the day of our Lord, whatever date it was, Eva Mercy almost died while attempting to masturbate and chewing trident gum. (laughs) And I have so many people come to me and say like, I was done after the opening sentence. Like I had to keep going. And it's like, I took something that was so mortifying and just girl, get it together. And made it, you know, a kick-ass opener. So I think that's what you have to do as an author. Let's start with you, Tia. Tell us about Seven Days in June. Okay, um, quick elevator pitch. It is about two famous authors who seemingly meet for the first time at this Brooklyn book panel situation, kind of like us. There's immediate chemistry... Sparks are flying, but unbeknownst to everyone in the room, they know each other because 15 years before when they were seniors in high school, they ran away from home together and spent seven wildly romantic days together and then went their separate ways and never spoke again, never spoke to each other again. But we find out that they've been communicating to each other over the years through their books. And so now they're back in each other's lives, and it's a whole thing.
0: It's a whole thing.
4: Okay, The Violin Conspiracy is a story of Ray, who discovers that his old family fiddle is actually a priceless Stradivarius violin. This discovery catapults him into superstardom in the world of classical music, and right before the Tchaikovsky competition, which is the Olympics... Of classical music. His violin is stolen. Was it his family who thinks that he should sell the violin and so they can split ten million bucks? Was it the Marx family whose great grandfather owned Ray's great grandfather and says that the violin really belongs to them? Was it Mike, the doorman? Was it his teacher who might be jealous because he's a better player than she is? Will he get it back? Will he compete? Will he win? There's a bunch of underlying stories about never giving up and. Blame Latent racism and how do you overcome things and doing what you love and all of that good stuff and then you get to find out if he wins the competition or if he even gets his violin back
2: Great. Great
3: so for all of you who hadn't picked it up yet now you have a reason okay <laughs> Wow. Well, um, I'm not used to giving the elevator pitch because my book just came out two days ago, so I'll give it a try. Um,
0: This is a safe place to practice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's a follow-up to the book Less, which is about um, a a sort of mediocre gay male white writer on a trip around the world to try to get away from the wedding of his boyfriend. This one is about a a gay white male mediocre writer... trying to make enough money to cover um, some expenses by taking a trip across America. And I took a trip across America. Um, I rented an RV for six weeks and went through the Southwest and the Deep South. Deep South, not North Carolina. (laughs) I've been here before. Because after the 2016 election, I was like, I think I don't understand part of the country or they don't understand me. And I'm going to go and sit in diners and uh, chat with everybody. So I took a lot of notes. And they weren't very funny notes until... I was like, well, but I'm funny. I'm the one who doesn't belong in that Alabama bar. So it's, it's that. It's the a story of what happens after the happy ending between he and his boyfriend and, and how you deal with sort of an unbalanced relationship, one who's narcissistic and one who's telling the story. It's from the point of view of Freddie, his boyfriend. It's a sort of ridiculing Arthur less in a loving way. And also sort of asking how is this country going to hold together as well as how is our relationship going to hold together?
2: So I kind of already talked about Under the Whispering Door, so I'm going to tell you how I made a previous panelist very, very upset with me. I was on a panel a couple of hours ago with an English professor um, named Lucinda Roy, and I basically said that Charles Dickens sucks. And that's why I wrote Under the Whispering Door. Under the Whispering Door is my take on... A Christmas Carol with Wallace Price playing the role of Ebenezer Scrooge. And why the reason that I said that, you know, I made her look at me in horror when I said, "Eh, Charles Dickens, blah, 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 is the reason that in A Christmas Carol, you have Scrooge, who's a jerk from the very beginning. And then he's visited by the three spirits, you know, the, the past, present, future. It's like a flip switches and all of a sudden he becomes a good person. Everything is wonderful. After he sees the errors of his ways, he becomes a better person. But you never see him put in the work to becoming a better person. Mr. Dickens, what were you doing? So what I wanted to do is I wanted to take the same conceit, the same kind of story and show what would happen To a person organically putting in the work to becoming a better person, and what shows when they succeed, but also what happens when they fail. Because I don't know what a good person is. I know that I try to be a better person every day, but I don't know if if I'll ever be a good person. With these kinds of books that I write, I'm trying to explore that while I'm still doing the queerness of it, while I'm still doing the comedy, while I'm still doing the fantasy, I'm asking these questions to myself, not necessarily of the reader, but to myself. What do I think it means to be a good person? Or what does it mean to be a bad person, or what does it mean to want things done a certain way that others don 't agree with and I, I like exploring the human condition because we 're messes y 'all <laughs> like we are we are messy, messy people, and I love that our eccentricities and our little quirks and everything they just they amass together to become who we are, they shape us as who we are as people and i just love I just love humans I do you know there, with under the whispering door, I was asked a lot about why I kept it agnostic. I never showed what an afterlife is. I never showed what God or whoever is supposed to be, because I wanted people from every faith to be able to take something away from it. I remember I got an email from a rabbi who's been a rabbi for fifty years. When he read Under the Whispering Door, he said he wanted to email me because he thought that I was a lost person, that I was missing my faith. And I responded to him in kind and I said, no, I'm, I'm good with it. I'm a lazy ag- agnostic. That's how I identify. And he was totally chill. He's like, oh, okay, that's totally cool. Thank you for reading this book. And then I get an email from an author of religious books who I made the mistake of replying, yeah, I'm a lazy agnostic. To this day, I get at least two or three emails from her a day with Bible passages <laughs> and explanations of how Jesus... That dude right there is totally going to be my savior. And I get these messages every day and I don't block her because I want to see how long she goes without me replying to her. <laughs> I responded to her one time four weeks ago. And she sends me at least two emails a day talking about Jesus and Christ and all this. And I'm just like, oh, cool. You just keep on doing what you're doing. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. You go crazy. It's cool.
0: Thank you for anticipating the question we all had. So let's mix it up a little bit. I would love to hear something really gushy the people said to you about your book.
2: Can I be gushy about him real quick?
0: Yeah. Just
2: close your eyes. When I heard that I was going to be on the panel with you, like I freaked out because I'm like, okay, he won the Pulitzer for less, man. Not only that, not only that though, it was a queer novel that won. It was undeniably queer, ferociously queer. And it was about a queer man. And that won the Pulitzer. But, you know, that's awesome. That's wonderful. I'm sure that changed your whole world. But I just want to tell you that the book itself was beautiful. And whether it be a Pulitzer or whether it be just a random reader saying to you that you did something beautiful, you did something beautiful with less. I just think that was an extraordinary book. And I'm so happy that it got the recognition that it deserved. I've been wanting to say that ever since I knew he was going to be on the panel.
3: (laughs) I have a response to that. I don't go on Amazon like ever to look at like how things are going, but I did,
0: <laughs>
3: and I was like, let's see how things are going. And I was like, well, you know, LGBT um, is separate from literary fiction for some reason, and on Amazon because that it is.
2: Yeah. yeah, they have they have their own queer categories on Amazon, so whenever you see somebody like get like mainstream het romance and they're they're just getting promoted all over the place. Queer romance has its own special list own that specialist. we're not allowed to be.
3: They don't want people stumbling across. Yeah, that. you don't know want
2: you don't want to act get accidentally gay. Is <laughs> yeah. how it happens.
0: <laughs>
3: well, I went on. I was like, let's see what the LGBTQ. Let's see what the bestsellers are. I was on there. T.J. <laughs> Mother motherfucking T.J. Clue. Wow. And when I saw he was going to be on this panel, I was like, I have something to say to him. <laughs> Which is thank you. I'm very, ex- I'm very excited about your success. I'm so excited there's this new book.
0: I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> I overheard some, your book changed my life. I'm going to cry talking to you. I can't wait to read it again conversation last night. And also, you left out the part you shared yesterday about how someone told you you invented a new genre of the musical thriller. Do you want more of those in your life? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. You know, it's kind of disingenuous for y'all to sit up here and clap and you haven't even picked up my book yet. Really? (laughs) No, except for this lady right here. We're cool. We're cool. No, no. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm, um, I've heard people say reading your book has really changed me because there's stuff that I had no idea about. You know, I just did not know that that's what it was like for people who look like you. I had no idea. And just seeing someone's perspective change, you know, be open to change, that's, that's amazing. And because, you know, we are how we are people and everyone has their own opinions about things and just to be open to you know, experiencing something different that's major, that's huge and I'm really happy that uh, it has touched some people that way and it'll touch you too once you go and pick it up
0: <laughs> Now, we all know Tia is a strong, smart capable woman able to tell a great story but I'm going to preemptively say that in our book club recently, I, s- I see somebody in the balcony who came to our book club meeting and said, oh, since reading Seven Days in June, I've learned what I love It is romance novels with emotional depth. And I need more of that in my life because it was perfection. It it was Valencia. It was Valencia. It was. It was. So that's something that was said to me about your book. We want to hear what a reader told you. Not about about the sex scenes this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because that was amazing. You can't top that. Well, you you know,
5: there's an art to it. There's an art to a sex scene. Yeah, well, I hear that a lot. And it's like sometimes you wonder if it's a... um, what is it called? Double-sided compliment? Double-handed? Backhanded Backhanded, Backhanded compliment. Um, so many readers are like, and I don't even read romance, but girl! And I'm like, well, you don't have to start off, you know, poo-pooing the genre. But, you know, everyone is always really surprised at how deep I go. Because for me, writing love stories, I mean, my, kind of my pet peeve is when with movies and TV shows and books, like you're just told that these two people are in love without like building a case for it and making you like yearn and ache and the slow burn and when will they and oh my God, Paige to something and finally they touch each other and the world explodes. <laughs> and that's how you really get invested in it and for me, building that case is going deep with who they are their childhoods, what they want, what they don't have, what they're missing, you know. I just have to say, as like celebrity stalking trash, so on Thursday, I got to talk with <laughs> Taylor Jenkins Reid um, for the opening ceremony, and I told her, like, reading her books, it's clear that she grew up in a People magazine house, you know, like, your mom had a subscription. She was like, yes, ma'am. When Seven Days in June was chosen by Reese Witherspoon to be her June book club pick for June 2021. Woo! So every month she has a new book, obviously, and she releases a video of just herself talking about the book, which is. I can't even... We were born in the same year, and so I would watch all of her movies and be like, okay, so that's... All right, it's 1995. That's what I should be wearing. Okay, a deep side part. Like, <laughs> at, at every stage of Reese Witherspoon's life, I've been, like, in there. And just to hear her in a video, like, hitting all of these points that I was trying to make and wasn't even sure that I got across. And this is... The book was out for two days when she released that video. So I hadn't known... I I had didn't have any feedback yet from anyone. So I... Blacked out. Like I don't even remember that moment. So that was very exciting. I love it.
3: We didn't get a gush about TJ from TJ. He gave it to me.
2: Okay. Well, um, a few months ago, I got a message from a soldier in the in Ukraine. He is currently fighting in the war with Russia. He sent me. Initially, in this first email, he he sent talking about how hard it is for them in their country right now, how hard it is to be separated from their families and everything like that. And then he sent pictures of his entire unit holding copies of The House in the Cerulean Sea because they said that it gave them hope that the world could be a bit better place and that they had only one of them, the one who wrote to me, read English. So he was helping them learn how to read English with this book while they were deployed in a war trying to fight for their lives. You know, there are moments that are so profoundly humbling because you th- we live in this world. We, we, we have our own battles and our own struggles that we're going through, and it, it seems like every day the news just makes everything worse. Everything is on fire. Everybody hates everyone else. But there are moments of such profound, this humbling feeling when you know that there are people who are living their lives that are having things so much harder and that they are fighting for what they believe in, and for some reason— They have taken a little part of me with them to do this. And I don't know that there was any greater compliment that an author can receive than hearing that this book gave them hope, but it's also helping them to learn English because they one day want to leave this place behind and go to a place where they can be free and feel safe. And, you know, we get to be here. We get to do stuff like this. I think we take that for granted sometimes because, I mean, I got an email from a kid. When my young adult series, The Extraordinaries, came out because it had two boys on the cover, and he lives in a rural place in Ohio. And if his parents found out that he was reading a book with two boys on the cover, they would know. And if I knew of any way I could get him a copy of the book without that on the cover. So I I had a galley copy that was just like a pink copy, it was the black letter, and I sent him that. That shows you that even though it's 2020, we're in the 2020s now, there are people everywhere in this country and everywhere else who are literally trying to survive in ways that we can't understand and i just think that it's so important that we remember that every reader that we have is a person and every reader we have has their own story and that what i love is that when they take the time to tell us their stories and everything like that that we can be part of their their lives at least for a little bit and you know and that we may never see or talk to these people again but for one moment in time we were together and united in something and i just think that's wonderful <clears throat> This
3: second row here cannot take another minute of you talking. They're in tears.
0: We could go for hours like this. And I would want to ask you all about your absolutely soaring endings. So Tia and Andy. And your like puzzle box perfection endings, Brendan and TJ. And I really want to hear about the strong sense of place with your book set in book world. And music. And the tea shop that is not a tea shop. But we don't have time for that. So real quick, how about tell me a book that has meant a lot to you, as a writer or as a reader? Lightning round, go. Uh, Postcards from the Edge by Carrie Fisher. Oh yeah. Oh, never read it. Making notes. Love it. My
3: new favorite, A Little Devil in America, Hanif Abdurraqib. I spent the last week staying up till three in the morning rereading the His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, which I hadn't read in thirty years, and I'm like, that is really good.
2: It was just, it was that same childhood joy. Yeah. The book that I read recently that I adored was The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle by Matt Kane. It is a book about a queer postal worker in his 60s who lives in the UK during the 1970s, and he makes a decision that he wants to come out to his community and find the lost love of his life. And it was comped, as for, for fans of Frederick Bachman and T.J. Clarence, and I was like, oh... That's me. I better check to make sure this works. And it was delightful. Matt Kane, The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle. I wish everyone could read it. It is a book about queer joy and queer happiness, but it's such a quiet book that it just, yeah. it sings to me and I love it.
0: Thank you for those. Thank you all for being such a great audience. Your enthusiasm for these four authors is obvious. We'd love to see it. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed listening in today. The show notes for this episode are at what should I read next slash three fifty-one. That's where we'll link to all the stuff we talked about today, and you can get more information on the show. Get our weekly newsletter in your inbox so you never miss a thing. Sign up at what should I read next slash newsletter. Follow us on Instagram at What Should I Read Next, and I am there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E. B is in Books, O G E L. For more peeks at what it's like to attend a literary festival, check out my story highlight. It's called Bookmarks, and I walk readers through my festival experience on Friday, then share a whole bunch of photos from the weekend, including behind the scenes from this panel. This is a great place to see photos of everything we talked about today and get a visual feel for what Bookmarks was all about. Make sure you're following in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next week when we have our first and much anticipated gift recommendation episode. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with production assistance by Holly Wikechefsky and sound design by Kellen Pekacheck. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.